Thanks for coming. He's not feeling well? Okay. The twins gave him something horrible. These are the grandchildren? Yes. How old are they? A year. Oh. <laughs> okay, it's worth it. <sighs> well, let's say a blessing and then I'll describe what we're up to. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav B'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah Amen. May our Torah study today enliven us and enlighten us. The Torah portion is called Beha'alotcha. It's a very long portion. It's five chapters in the book of Numbers. It starts uh, with chapter 8. And it's so chock full of um, fantastic material that I read it and I studied it and I, um, and then I sit going, okay, where, where, what, what speaks to me today? And there's a lot speaks to me today. So I bought a new book. Um, one of my favorite Torah uh, scholars, Aviva Zornberg, has come out with a new book, this time on the book of Numbers, Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness, you recall, and so she called her book Bewilderments, which I think is a great title, because, and, and so I'll be, so I was reading her today, reading Aviva Zornberg for me, and I know for many people, it, it's so dense with uh, references to psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic uh, theory, to literary theory, to uh, Jewish uh, sources, to that I can only get through a couple of pages without starting to fall asleep. Um, but it's, it's always worth it. Uh, if I can just sort of like hang in there and then start to get to where she's going. Um, she, she points out that the book of Numbers is a tragedy. The book is a tragedy. Uh, that it begins with this incredibly hopeful um, readiness to enter the promised land. And then, in, starting in this chapter, in this portion, has 10 to 15 chapters of, um, of tragedy, where the children of Israel don't get to go to the land. In fact, they fall to pieces and they're condemned to die in the wilderness and to, to wander. And so, uh, eventually, at the end of the book, 39 years have passed and a whole new generation, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua uh, and perhaps the daughters of Tzalochad, uh, um, are still alive, but everyone else has passed away in the wilderness. So she was starting out by pointing out about the, that it's, it's, um, it's not a straightforward linear journey here at all. There's something very complicated going on. I thought that was very interesting. So I thought we would, even though there's many other things I'd like to focus on, I think I'll follow um, uh, uh, her interest, which is also mine, with a particular portion in here. But first, let's summarize what happens in the portion. 
if you want to follow along, I'll be skimming for a little while. This is chat page 952 or chapter 8 in Numbers. Nine five two, and I want to say again, I could have stopped and talked about any of these sections, and yet I feel compelled to move forward. So, I, but I, I don't want to ignore them. The portion is called Beha'alotcha because Beha'alotcha has the root Laha'alot or Allah to go up or to raise up, because it says, tell Aaron when he raises up the lights on the menorah. The menorah on the, is the seven-branched candelabrum that sits in front of the curtain in the temple courtyard, that the curtain through behind which is the Holy of Holies. And I've spoken at length about the number seven, and it was that in this class did we do it? Uh, was it was it here a few weeks ago, or was it else? Was it elsewhere? Um, where it was here, right? Yeah, yeah. If you were here, I spent the whole class looking at the number seven. Oh yes, when we were in the end of Leviticus, so it's not that long ago. Um, how the number seven is the organizing principle of the Torah and of Judaism, and that seven-branched menorah represents that cosmic order. Right? And it's supposed to be kept alight by the high priest, the eternal light. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the menorah. Some of you may know that it's the oldest known Jewish symbol. Um, Bob Messing's not here, so he can't show us his, his Hasmonean coins. But uh, the, the seven-branched menorah that stood in the temple... Is the, first, the first places we have it attested to are on coins from the Maccabees. Right? They used it as the symbol on their coins. The, the, and so that's in the 2nd century BCE. 1st uh, or 2nd century BCE. We know about the menorah from the Arch of Titus in Rome. Some of you may be familiar with that. When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70 and captured uh, the sacred objects in the temple, there's a famous arch in Rome uh, called the Arch of Titus, uh, where it shows the menorah being carried along into captivity. Um, there's an ironic story about the menorah because all the other renderings of the menorah that we have from ancient um, graffiti and uh, carvings and such. Uh, the menorah is a seven-branched, beautiful gold object with three, a tripod of legs. Um, with, and so it's on a stand of a tripod. And the menorah in the depiction on the arch has these two sort of massive octagonal bases. Uh, which, why? We don't know why, but it's not, it doesn't appear to be an accurate depiction of the actual menorah. The top part is, but the bottom part, the artist, who knows? So the irony is that 
when the state of Israel was being founded, there was a debate as to what the national symbol would be. And some of you know this story already. The Star of David is a very, very recent Jewish symbol, mm -hmm. interestingly enough. Um, there's a, there are, in, say, cemeteries in Prague, stars on gravestones, and in some medieval texts of magic and Kabbalah, there are pentacles and six-pointed stars that are known as either the Shield of David, Magen David, or the Seal of Solomon, but they're not ubiquitous Jewish symbols. It, the, the actual Star of David as a symbol of Judaism uh, actually only emerges in the 19th century in response to outside influence. The, if the cross represents, if Judaism is one of the three great monotheistic faiths and the cross represents Christianity and the crescent represents uh, Islam, then this, for some reason, the six-pointed star fell in as the Jewish symbol. It's only, it's, it's not ancient. It's crazy, isn't it? Yes, it is. Whereas the, but, but by, the, in, by the late 19th century in Europe, it was understood to be a, the Jewish symbol. The, the, uh, so the compromise, but the real Jewish symbol, as it were, the most venerable, as it, not real, real's not the right word, the most venerable Jewish symbol is the uh, menorah. It's the oldest one we have. Does menorah necessarily mean seven? No. no. Menorah just means a candelabrum or a lamp. Uh, that's, uh, but, uh, yes? I'm sorry, Jonathan, my mind skipped. So, so the Morgan Dome is becoming more ubiquitous with about... 19th century? 19th century. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the most venerable Jewish symbol is the seven-branched menorah, which was the symbol used on the coins of the Maccabean period. So, it was determined by the founders of the State of Israel that the flag would have the six-pointed star, but that the national seal is the menorah. So that's the... It, it, that makes sense, right? Uh, and the irony for me is that as their model, they used the image from the Arch of Titus in Rome, which was not... Uh, and so that's the way the world works, right? We're all mixed up. But yes? You know, I have to reread um, the article by Gershon Shalom about the origin of the six-pointed star of David. And how it ended up not being the Torah, being a symbol of, of some tiny scroll. I'm going to... Um, everything I know from this is from an article I read several years ago. I have to reread it. I would love it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's in a book by Gershon Shalom. I don't know. Could it be the Maccabeans? Because they overthrew a... Uh, the, the Maccabeans? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, she's asking about the six-pointed star. Yeah, but that was also on their coin, you said. That. No, the menorah was on oh, their the coin. the menorah, I'm sorry. You're yeah. Right. yeah. Yes, Anne? What's the relationship between the menorah of the 
seven uh, point um, to the Hanukkah menorah of nine candles. Yeah, the relationship of the seven branch menorah, which is the menorah that that uh, we're instructed to make and put in the ancient sanctuary, and the nine branched menorah, which is the Hanukkah menorah. Um, that's called a Hanukkah. Uh, and is specifically for Hanukkah. And because Hanukkah has eight days, um, and it needs to have a ninth candle as the uh, server candle, so a Hanukkah, that's why menorah could be any candelabrum, right? The Hanukkah menorah has nine, because you need to light for each of the eight days of Hanukkah, and there's the ninth, whereas the menorah in the ancient uh, temple had just... uh, six instead of eight with one in the center. So the Hanukkah menorah just sort of adds one. Uh, but I need to find out more. I'm going to reread that article uh, and tell you what I find out. So I just wanted to say that about the menorah. It's, it's, just, it's, it's the most venerable Jewish symbol. Um, and therefore the fact that it contains the seven, as we were describing a couple of weeks ago, makes it even clearer to me why it might be so central. Because seven is the organizing principle of Judaism. The fact that the seven lights would not, which are not just, which, uh, you know, uh, are the seven days of creation, uh, the, the, the cycle of six, and then renewal, all of that, uh, made me reflect on the menorah and why it might have had such lasting power to people who were, this was their primary conceptual universe, right? For us, it's not quite so primary. We have to work our way into it. We have to sort of suss it out uh, by the study that we do. But for Jews for whom this was their Bible, right, their beginning and their ending, uh, then they immerse themselves in it, then having a symbol of seven lights at the center of uh, the action makes total sense to me. That's what I wanted to share. Um, it's not, none of it's an accident. It's all part of the pattern of sevens that make up the Torah. What happens then is that the Levites are consecrated again to be the servants of yod heh vav in the sanctuary. It's an interesting ritual because all that says, um, if you look at verse 10 on page 953, and bring the Levites forward before the Eternal and let the Israelites lay their hands upon the Levites. So all of the Israelite leaders lay their hands on the Levites. And uh, remember the laying on hands of, say, on the scapegoat, on the... So all, there's all this laying on of hands. And let Aaron designate the Levites before the Eternal as an elevation offering from the Israelites. So the Levites are actually an offering from the Israelites that they may perform the service of the Eternal. And the Levites shall now lay their hands upon the heads of the bulls. 
and one shall be offered to the Eternal as a sin offering, and the other as a burnt offering, to make expiation for the Levites. I just love the symbolism of this. Um, I could picture it. The Israelites laying hands on the Levites, the Levites laying hands on the bull, the bull being offered up to God. Uh, it was a visual that I just really liked uh, seeing how, um, again, you can think of the Levites as being elevated into a higher caste or as being elevated towards a higher purpose on behalf of the people. And of course, over time, the folks who are hanging out where the best barbecue is and where the treasury room is, where, you know, definitely want to hang on to their position. Um, but uh, in essence here, the reason the Levites are consecrated is explained in the next paragraph. Um, thus, you, thus, verse 14, Thus you shall set the Levites apart from the Israelites, and the Levites shall be mine. Uh, um, skip verse 15. Uh, verse 16, For they are formally assigned to me from among the Israelites. I have taken them for myself in place of all the first issue of the womb of all the male firstborn of the Israelites. For every male firstborn among the Israelites, human as well as beast, is mine. I consecrated them to myself at the time that I smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now I take the Levites instead of every male firstborn of the Israelites. And from the Israelites I formally assign the Levites to Aaron and his sons to perform the service for the Israelites in the tent of meeting and to make expiation for the Israelites so that no plague may afflict the Israelites for coming too near the sanctuary. So there's as clear an explanation as possible uh, in, again, this ancient mindset of all the firstborn being consecrated to the Creator. Is right? that why you bind them back? Yes. That's why you have to buy them back, your firstborn. You have to redeem them. Uh, with only the fu- if it's a boy. If it's a, only if it's a boy, though girls are now, you now can, if you want to pay for your girl too. <laughs> she's, she's marked down. <laughs> <laughs> we, accept, we accept the same price for boys and girls. Here. Oh, doesn't, doesn't it say that you, don't, that, it, that you don't have to buy them back because it's taken? That's right. And yet elsewhere in the Torah, because the Torah is not consistent, elsewhere in the Torah it says that now you also have to redeem with five half shekels or something like that. Um, God forgot. Huh? God forgot? Forgot that he said you don't have to listen. Uh, right, that's because he didn't read the board minutes. <laughs> read the minutes. Okay. All right. So um, then there's this fascinating section. Um, now, if you look at page 954, chapter 9. Page 954, down at the bottom. Now the Eternal One spoke to Moses and said, On the first new moon of the second year, Following the exodus from the land of Egypt, God said, Let the children of Israel offer the Passover sacrifice at its set time. You shall offer it on the 14th day of this month at twilight at its set time. 
You shall offer it in accordance with all of its rules and rights. Think about this for a minute. I found this interesting. Um, if this is the second year, what happened at Passover last year? Yeah. That was when they were escaping. Yeah. They've just, it's, a, it's a year since the actual uh-huh. right. That's right. exodus. This is the instruction to commemorate it for the first time. I find that interesting too, just that uh, 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 now everything's been set up. I have the Levites in place of the firstborn that I smote in Egypt. Now, so the whole commemorating and reenacting and the whole purpose of Passover, as we know, is to remember what happened to us and that now we're free. And here's the instruction for the first really the first Passover, uh, uh, the first Passover commemoration. The real Passover had been a year before, and now, and I was thinking about anniversaries, um, how important it would be, how, how natural it is, whether we're following a, a, a calendar day by day, or whether we follow the stars and the, the seasons, to know that this time of year is when it happened. And there's something in us, whether it's a death or a birth or a marriage or a something, some huge transformative passage that we mark in our bodies, in our muscle memory. I remember because for me, after my dad died, for and it was on the um, day before New Year's. For years, I would get depressed. Uh, and um, it just happened, and it took me a number of years and my wife to remind me over and over, it's that time of year. It's very interesting. No, 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 December 30th. Um, it's that time of year. And uh, I needed to commemorate it. I, that's what yard sites are about, right? I needed to mark it so that my consciousness was tuned in I was thinking about that when I was reading this passage, uh, how uh, that naturally after that event a year ago, the people would need to commemorate it uh, and have a ritual to remember it and uh, transform it, right? Because we want the remembering to be transformative. We want it to, I want the remembering to somehow take my in this case, when it was grieving, take my pain and uplift it somehow, mark it, or um, uh, boundary it, or something, if you, know, if you know what I mean. I mean, that's, that's why we create rituals. So I was thinking about that when we get to the first Passover. Yes? Uh, yes, there's a contradiction. Good for you. Good for you. So the Torah is not chronologically consistent. What happened is, so if you look at the beginning of um, Numbers, you can look if you want. Uh, it's on page 899. <clears throat> it's the same as uh, Diane was saying, but wait a minute. It says something a little different 
over here about the firstborn and how you redeem them. And here's something, a different story. The Torah, the Torah redactors, the editors of the Torah, did not seem to care about these inconsistencies or they would have done something about them, right? So they had a different idea of, and of the purpose of narrative, right? They weren't as chronologically uh, uh, oriented as we modern readers are. Uh, it, in other words, I like to think of it as a collection of stories. And if the one version's a little different from the other version, oh, okay. you, you know, that's, uh, that, that seems to be the nature of the Torah. Otherwise, why would it be so full of con contradictions? I, at least in my, the way I try to think about it. It Here, seems like it's the nature of life. I mean, life is inconsistent. And memory is not accurate, and memories go back and forth depending on... You know, a book of not history, but memory. Mm -hmm. A memoir. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's a nice way of thinking about it. Um, and we can pull out historical... What we can pull out historically, we try to, but that's not the end goal of this book. And if we think that's the end goal, to study the history we'll wear it out, you know, uh, because uh, we'll, we'll be trying to, because we'll, that's not its primary purpose. Uh, but but um, Helen's right, it says at the beginning of the book, I'm not sure if it's a kind of well, it says on the, on the first day of the second month in the second year following the Exodus, and here it says on the first uh, new moon of the second year, uh, that would have been the first month. The first month. Chodesh HaRishon, it says. Chodesh uh, HaRishon, and here it says Chodesh HaSheni. So we have backed up a month, no question about it. At least 15, 14 days. So that would mean that all of this might be before the census that comes at the beginning, for whatever that's worth, if we want to try to make it chronological. But one thing is very clear, the chronology is not in order. It starts in the second one, then it says, so think, uh, if you think of it as a more memoir, then you'd go back, oh, and in the first month since I left, so then we're not worried about it being a timeline, but, oh, this was, about, this was a chapter about the census, and that happened here, and then a month before, you know, so we don't have to, but you're right, you picked that up, and it's, uh, I noticed that too when I was reading. Yes, Jay? Yeah, on that, and I just read um, the same page, 899, and maybe you could clarify it, you might have done it last week, but it strikes me on this number two that the consensus is, is scoped only for male fighters. And yes. Last and week you said count everyone. I said the tradition, the Jewish tradition, changes that into everybody even though the Torah is clear that it's just the, male, the males of fighting age. But we talked at length about that a couple weeks ago, so I don't want to do that today. Okay, okay, okay. You know, I, I just read it for the first time. So yeah, yeah, it. yeah. No, it's, this is what it literally means. This was, a, this was getting ready to, the, to, to divide up the, this band of slaves into organized divisions and platoons and count up you know, the number of fighting men you had and get ready to march to the promised land. Right? That's what's going on. And they're still getting ready to march to the promised land here, and all of their plans are going to get completely messed up. So picture like an organized fighting force,
getting ready. They've, they, they, they've prepared themselves. They're ready. They were a powerless band of slaves. They've escaped, and now they're organizing themselves so that they can go enter the land that's been promised to them. And instead, it's going to take 40 years. So, uh, but yes, you're right. So then, it, so, he, back on 954, yeah? Can I just ask something? And maybe yeah. you covered, I came in a little late, and yeah. I apologize. Um, so all of this is not the first anniversary. On the first anniversary, it's in the second anniversary. No, it's in the first anniversary. It's the second year. How long did the whole Exodus take? But it's Bishana HaShenit. Let's say, Tom, Mimi, Eretz, Mitzrayim. In the second... It says in the second year, not in the first You're right, it says year. in the not second the year. And it also on page yeah, but for the first five. Time. Yeah, what's That's it say? Also the second year, right? Yeah, I always assumed that it meant the second year, the that they'd been out one year, and this was now the beginning of the... The first anniversary year. begins the second year, so it's okay. Oh, okay. That's how I understand it. Okay. I think that's right, but, you know... We don't know. We, just, we, we don't know. The tradition assigns a time frame to it, but uh, we don't actually know. It, the, the, the Torah doesn't say yes. Would you agree that because there is um, not a strict censorship making one perfect narrative, there are conflicting narratives, yes. um, that somehow there was um, the deciders and editors were... Uh, kind of a democracy and forever the Torah would be a contemporary book, a read, a, you know, a scripture, whatever uh-huh. it is, because it is um, devoid of um, attaching itself to time, you know. Oh, that's a nice way of describing it. I, I never said it that way. I don't know what the intention of the framers was. Um, I like that may... But so that's a perfectly, and, and whenever I share anything, it's just an educated guess. So yours is good too. Um, the way the rabbis dealt with Torah was they said, and this is one of their rules of Torah interpretation, is they have like a list of them, sort of like rules meaning... Guiding uh, principles. Uh, principles, yeah, conventions. And that is, there is no before and after in Torah. So they took the liberty of the, of the confused timeline in here to conflate and mix and have things happen in their minds. So they treat it, as we have learned to do, more like a dreamscape than a historical landscape so that they can make all the connections that, that follow in the direction of what you're saying that can keep it sort of fluid in a certain way. Right, right, I agree, yes. Um, so here's what happens next. Moses instructed the Israelites, this is verse uh, 4 on page 955, to offer the Passover sacrifice. And they offered the Passover sacrifice in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai. That is Passover, right? The full moon, uh, twilight, uh, just as the Eternal had commanded Moses, so the Israelites did. And here's this interesting passage. 
But there were some people who were impure by reason of a corpse. Okay, remember the laws of ritual, purity, and impurity. If you had contact with the dead, you had to wait and not be part of the sacred uh, communion um, until you had gone through a cleansing process, a, a reintegration process from death back to life. So if, you had, so if that was the case, they couldn't offer the sacrifice that day. They weren't permitted to because of their status as having come in contact with the dead. They appeared that same day before Moses and Aaron, and those people said to them, impure though we are by reason of a corpse, why must we be debarred from presenting the eternal's offering at its set time with the rest of the Israelites? Is this fair? <laughs> it's not fair. This is like, we were there too. You know, Moses said to them, stand by and let me hear what instructions yud Vafe has about you. Isn't that great? They come to, they come to Moses just... Just as the daughters of just as the daughters of Tzolofchad will come to Moses at the end of the book and say, "Hey, there are no male heirs in our uh, family. Uh, what are we supposed to do? We don't want to give our land away." Moses says, "Stand by." <laughs> but, it's, but it's not just stand by. I mean, it's really stand here. Imdu. That's right. The word imdu means stand. Right. Right. So it's really interesting how that term has sort of evolved into, oh, just wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I like that. Moses doesn't know. We have a new, a new precedent that needs to be established. I like that very much. Um, and God says to Moses, speak to the Israelite people and say, when any of you or your posterity who are defiled by a corpse or bederech rechoka, far away on the journey, would offer a Passover sacrifice to the Eternal, they shall offer it in the second month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. This is called, some of us know, Pesach Sheni, the second Passover, which um, is commanded in the Torah. Um, and it says, and they shall not leave any of it over till morning. They shall not break a bone of it. They shall offer it in strict accord with the law of the Passover sacrifice, even though it's a month late. But if a person who is pure and not on a journey refrains from offering the Passover sacrifice, that person shall be cut off from kin. For the Eternal's offering was not presented at a set time. That person shall bear the guilt. And when a stranger who resides with you would offer a Passover sacrifice to the Eternal, it must be offered in accordance with the rules and rights of the Passover sacrifice. There shall be one law for you, whether stranger or citizen alike. That implies then that the stranger is an, is, is a Jew, an no. Israelite. Well, no, it doesn't. So first, let's look at a few points in this. I, I just, I thought I was going to do something different, but I can't resist this stuff. Um, the rabbis love this phrase. Not just the not just the Talmudic rabbi, but the Middle Ages, and I was reading a bunch of commentaries on this. Um, it's one thing if you were defiled by a corpse, but what's it mean to be bederech rechoka, derech rechoka, on a long journey? What's rachok mean? Far. far. If you're far away, uh, and they say, if you're far away spiritually, mm -hmm. and you come back, 
you always can renew your connection to the covenant. And that's in the connection to what it means about the soul who's cut off, who refuses to uh, join in the Passover commemoration. That's what this is, right? We're remem- this is so, we know this is the central... Um, again, um, I've been talking with my Christian clergy friends. This is the central sacrament of collective Jewish life. We redefine ourselves and we rejoin the Jewish collective memory by joining in the Passover reenactment. There's nothing more central in our collective Jewish sacramental life. This is how we do it. And it's the last thing that people tend to give up. It is the last thing that tend to people. It's still the most observed ritual in Jewish population surveys, even among people who have no other Jewish affiliation. They'll find a Seder to go to. Uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? it? It seems to be at the core of our collective memory and identity. And it should be. I mean, it doesn't seem to be. It is. And that seems to hold true. Uh, so, I'm very taken by, uh, by that because in that light, this is not one of those sentences where that person shall be killed. It literally says cut off um, and bear the guilt for not joining in the communal remembrance. So that's... Uh, and then I was reading another commentary and, and uh, um, uh, talking about the so-called wicked child at the Passover Seder. Um, for, again, for Jewish values, that child, that child saying, what does this mean to you and not to me? For that child has cut themselves off. Uh, but the commentary was saying, but we still invite them to the Seder table, which I think is a very nice sort of... Uh, to ask their question. To ask their question. So, so cutting off may be a, not that we're kicking them out, but that they bear their guilt, but that they can keep... So that it's a spiritual condition, not necessarily a physical condition. And that's where the derach rechokah, that they're far away. They can always come back and celebrate the Passover again. It's not that they're permanently disconnected, ever. That was the interesting pieces of commentary I was reading on it. Carol and Bob? What is bear their guilt in Hebrew? Yisa, b'moado, chet o yisa. They carry their sin. In other words, they bear their, 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 uh, their actions. They, are, they carry the re- consequences of those actions. Responsible, that's what it means. Yeah. I thought the way you uh, described this, there's both the spiritual or the personal soul is estranged or cut off. Estranged, good word. And then you suggested that in terms of the politics of citizenship, they're still at the table to ask questions. It would appear that they might be in, this, in that reading, yes. And so the stranger, in this case, again, if we compare other descriptions about Passover in the Torah, which, again, are not necessarily going to be consistent, because we've already you know, we, we're, we're, on to, we're on that track already. But the stranger has to be someone who has circum, been circumcised. 
So does that make them yes. Yes. already a member of the community? Uh, but, close, yeah. but this is a wonderful um, proof text that the conservative movement and uh, modern Jews use to say that anyone can join us around the Passover table. It's not a closed, uh, a, not a closed communion, not something where members only, but uh, one law for stranger and citizen alike. It, so it opens up the possibility of people joining themselves to this collective memory, um, which is fascinating when you think about it. Whose memory is it? I mean, it's my memory because I was raised to be taught that it's my memory. And uh, anyone can join the legacy, I guess, and make it their own in some way. It's fascinating to think about. Yes? There also seems to be something in here about the community nurturing or being necessary for one's spiritual uh, condition. Um, I don't know exactly what more to say about that, but there are, you know, Mm -hmm. it seems to be um, sort of implied here, at least to me, that um, if one is going to live in a spiritually sound way, or a spiritually aware way that there needs to be community to bring that forth, mm -hmm. to keep it alive, um, to bring it back. Mm -hmm. One of the things I can confidently say about Judaism across the board is that it it's not it's connecting to the community and having a community with which to travel and celebrate through life with is a primary religious value and cultural value, right? Uh, it's understood that we're walking through the wilderness together. Um, so I, I agree with that. And Hillel said, do not separate yourself from the community. And that becomes one of the watchwords of rabbinic Judaism. And I think it, it, uh, it's really true about, it, you know, I've said this many times. I like to try to, I like to try to figure out things that work for at least ninety percent of the Jews in the world. You know, the values that that, despite our unbelievable differences, are still guiding principles, and I, that's certainly one of them. Yes. Back to Exodus uh, twelve, forty-three, um, that no foreigner shall eat of it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. There we go. Thank you, Stu. The stranger who's been circumcised can. Yes. Thanks for finding that. Page uh, 414. So, uh, John, John. Hold on. I just want to read that again out loud. Um, no ben nechar, that means a foreigner, shall eat of it. But any male slave or person who has. Uh, uh, that can eat of it once he has been circumcised. But no bound or hired laborer shall eat of it. Um, if a male stranger deals who dwells with you would offer the Passover to the Eternal, all his males must be circumcised. Then he shall be admitted to offer it. He shall then be as a citizen of the country. But no one circumcised male may eat of it. There shall be one law for the citizen and the stranger who dwells among you. So it's pretty clear that the stranger, the ger, is a specific category of non-Israelite. It's not the 
passerby, foreigner. It's someone who has said, I want to be part of your community, even though I don't come from Jewish lineage. And that is why in rabbinic literature, ger becomes the word for a convert. In the Torah, it means a, a, a resident alien. But in rabbinic Judaism, it means someone who's converted to Judaism. Uh, because of this understanding that they're different than the, um, the foreigner who, who's living in your midst. It's, so it's a category from ancient times that keeps morphing. In contemporary Jewish life, uh, my colleagues and I are, have been discussing for years, and some synagogues have implemented this, whether they want a category in their synagogue called the ger, toshav, or the ger tzedek, meaning the resident foreigner, that would be a non-Jewish spouse who has thrown in their lot with the Jewish community. And they're not officially Jews because they haven't officially... So there's a lot of discussion about these liminal and in-between statuses and how we could name them and honor them. It's an interesting conversation. Jay? Yeah, and and, and I see that whole stranger conversation you're having now as part of a... I I mean, this is a universal message. This is, I mean, I mean, if you approach it sort of like a metaphor in which, you know, everybody is, a, you know, sort of has a pharaoh or, 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 or a fear or whatever that mm-hmm. darkness is, and they need to, you know, release themselves mm-hmm. from that. And maybe they, you know, from doing that, they're cutting themselves off and they feel a little bit insecure. And all. So it, it has a universal message. And I, I, I'm looking at this stranger, not so much as a stranger, but more like, hey, we have a, it's, it's very therapeutic, especially if you, as, as a ritual every year, to, to cleanse yourself of that, of that, whatever that metaphor might be in your own personal life. Nicely put. So here we have why Passover is such a powerful um, experience, because it simultaneously can reaffirm our communal identity while it reaffirms this universal principle. And uh, that's certainly the way I like to play it. Uh, Both. Yes and. You know, uh, this is what we stand for and we're affirming this in our way and it's a universal principle and this is how we stand for it. Yeah. So the stranger really isn't a stranger if they resonate Nicely put. Right. Nicely put. Wasn't there for years a prohibition against non-Jews and satyrs? Yes, because it says clearly that no one who is uncircumcised can participate. Only, and if the stranger, that, that's how the rabbis understand stranger. The stranger is someone who has joined the Jewish people as a convert. So ger becomes the word for a convert or a proselyte in rabbinic Judaism. And now in the 20th century, especially... We're redefining stranger uh, so that we can, because our inclination is to open this ritual up in our open society rather than keep it closed as it was in pre-modern times. So how would that have worked uh, in the early years of Islam? Uh, Because that's circumcision when they're 13, whatever age, uh, they're circumcised. So literally, obviously, a... Muslim would be accepted as a stranger, even though he's not connecting himself to the Jewish religion. Interesting. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in Switzerland for a while, and there I was an étranger, 
étranger en Suisse. That's right. That's appropriate, though, because Ezrach here, what we were reading, there shall be one law for you, the stranger and citizen of the country. La ger ula Ezrach haaretz. That's verse fourteen. Ezrach means citizen. Ger therefore means resident alien, um, and uh, uh, étranger. Yeah, yeah, that we would call that a resident alien, um, but. Again, for modern, for, for modern interpreters of Torah, to say that there shall be one law for the resident alien and the citizen alike is true to the thrust of Torah, in my opinion, the idea that even if a person does not have the full uh, rights in, of citizenship and therefore the recourse to legal protection of citizenship and the, uh, that, that if they're in your midst, you treat them just the same, with the same, with the same care and the same uh, um, uh, respect. respect and the same, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so, okay. Um, the next passage, which starts on 956, is now reminding us how they are supposed to travel through the wilderness. They're supposed to watch for the cloud during the day and the likeness of fire during the night mm. and if the cloud lifts they have to break camp mm. and follow mm. and uh, so it says um, and wherever the cloud settles there they have to make camp mm. so in verse 18 it says at a command of the eternal the, and this is very musical at a command of the eternal the Israelites broke camp and at a command of the Eternal, they made camp. They remained encamped as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. When the cloud lingered over the tabernacle many days, the Israelites observed the Eternal's mandate and did not journey on. At such times as the cloud rested over the tabernacle for but a few days, they remained encamped at a command of the Eternal and broke camp at a command of the Eternal. And at such times as the cloud stayed from evening until morning, they broke camp as soon as the cloud lifted in the morning. Day or night, whenever the cloud lifted, they would break camp. Whether it was two days or a month or a year, however long the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, the Israelites remained encamped and did not set out. And only when it lifted did they break camp. On a sign from the Eternal they made camp, and on a sign from the Eternal they broke camp, and they observed the Eternal's mandate at the Eternal's bidding through Moses. Isn't that interesting? It's, um, the repetition is the way the Torah works, you know. I mean, we think of it as enough already. Uh, you made your point. But that's not, that's not this kind of oratory, right? It's a different kind. If you think of, again, a different kind of preaching where... The, 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 the preacher will say, I have a dream 50 times, right? That's the sort of different kind of... That's because this isn't an instruction manual. This is an exhortation. Um, so, again, we've talked about the cloud in the past. 
this idea that your path is going to be determined not by you, but by your ability to discern this cloud and where it's going. Uh, again, for me, on a spiritual and personal level, the idea of practicing, you know, we're not tied to, uh, the idea of practicing um, uh, the kind of discernment and attention and patience and discipline and uh, to, to pay attention to where that divine presence is leading us. That's why I've often spoken about the desert sojourn as a spiritual boot camp where uh, uh, they're, they're practicing to learn to listen to a much more subtle um, um, prodding than the whips of the taskmasters. Right? What have they got? All they've had is, is brutal and cruel enforcement that tells them where and when to be. And now to become free, they have to learn a different and much more subtle and challenging skill. This isn't easy. Um, that's how I read it. I think of the cloud of unknowing. The cloud of unknowing. Because we don't know when it will lift. And sometimes, you know, people will run to get, you know, antidepressants or whatever, and sometimes that's valuable. But a lot of people, a lot of us, just, we don't want to wait. We don't want to wait. It's uncomfortable, for one thing. It's to remain in that darkness and trust that it will lift. Who came to Woodstock recently? He yeah. lives here at Piscan. Um, I can't. He, I can't. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, can you speak louder, Stacey? Oh, the Karmapa who said his. Oh, he's a, the, 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 he's the Tibetan Lama. He's, he's young and he's all for peace. He's not about politics, but he's, yeah, he's like very important. His, um, I heard him speak on the video uh, DVD that he looks at it as. The, the, the clouds are full of compassion. The clouds are full of compassion. And, and furthermore, I guess you studied Shakespeare or not, that we have a beautiful setting and like set, and the, what takes place could be wonderful and beautiful. It's up to us to decide, or are we going to go you know, choose a, barbar a barbaric... Um, right, know, here's the set drama. table, here's the setting. What play are we going to enact here? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, Susan. It's also to me about that still small voice that, I don't know, and it doesn't matter if that's me or that's some other voice, but it seems to be there's an alignment, there's a union between the still small voice that may be me and the still small voice that is bigger than that, that, that's the force that creates the next moment. And to be in relationship to that as much as possible, <clears throat> that's what I 
that's my practice. I, I mean, it's difficult to do, and but it just seems that to me is what the cloud is. Thank you. Thank you. Jay? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, because um, it, it reminds me a bit, and, and maybe, I, I don't know if it's right to make a comparison, that this, this thing of staying in the moment and being in details, watching details and what, reminds me a bit of what you said with Moses discovering the bush, that he would have passed that if he didn't really pay attention to what's around him, the burning bush. He might have just passed that. So it's almost somewhat of an analogy to now that the masses pay attention to the cloud sort of as the same kind of message. I agree. Rob? I'm just going to say that the following the clouds, you know, it, it's sort of following the ephemera is the exact opposite of Mitzrayim. I mean, they're diametrically opposed, right? Living in Mitzrayim with the pharaohs, all about compression and hardness and edge and time and place and making smaller. And this is exactly the opposite. It's just a total, you know, sort of evaporation and space. Right, and it'll make you crazy. Um, uh, if you're not grounded in your trust. Um, yes, Carol. Well, Thank you. Just that's, that's so, so sort of what I'm thinking here is that I'm learning in this boot camp. I'm learning to take care of myself. I'm learning to be an adult. I'm learning to be an upright member of the community. I don't know that going in. And I need all these guidelines, I need all these explanations, I need somebody to at least appear to be in dialogue with, 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 with God so that, so that there, there, are, there are the guidelines. But I'm sensitizing myself, I'm becoming more and more aware each time the cloud descends and each time the cloud lifts, I'm becoming more and more aware so that I can make my own adult decisions. That's what I'm hearing. Thank you. Uh, I'm thinking about the question of um, if our, if our goal is liberation, then what is, what is true human liberation? And this would be the question every spiritual um, uh, tradition is asking about. So I was thinking, um, oh, I don't want this thought to fly away. Um, it, it'll come back. Isn't that funny how that happens? <laughs> Part of the cloud. Yeah, the cloud. <laughs> wow, is that so funny? Is not oh, right now. oh, oh, yes, I remembered. Okay, yeah. so this is where the military metaphors have to get turned on their head, right? And this is why one of the reasons why it's a great story, a great a sacred myth, because they're all like lined up for what, right? They've got their divisions. They've got their flags. They've got, is it to march to the promised land and conquer it? Well, what does that mean? Apparently, being, being soldiers of yud heh is not the same as being soldiers of Pharaoh. 
It's a, it's a metaphor that you have to turn upside down for this idea of not following the lead chariot, but discerning the cloud and, and giving your obedience and your service to it. So the, you know, uh, the metaphors of being a soldier for God or a spiritual warrior can get kind of dicey. I think we were talking about that somewhere, somewhere recently. <laughs> I don't think it was in here. Uh, because you don't want to get militant in a certain regard. Right. On the other hand, marshalling all of your resources in an organized way and then deploying them is a very useful metaphor. So deployed towards what end? And this is the contrast the Torah sets up between are you servants of Pharaoh or servants of life unfolding? Are you soldiers of Pharaoh or soldiers of life unfolding? And so I think the metaphor, you have it, it sort of turns itself on its head. Diane? I think servants uh, of Pharaoh and servants of life unfolding are the same thing. It's just that a choice was made to follow this life unfolding rather than Pharaoh's life unfolding. I hear you, but we clearly put, a, uh, we, we don't think of it as a level playing field. Right. As Not a level playing field. It's not a neutral, I mean, it's not a neutral choice. The universe wants us right. to go towards this kind of servitude, not the... Not, not a human. So you can see it as just as a neutral choice, but the Torah does not see it as a neutral choice. The Torah says one is... Right, is, because the people who wrote the Torah chose this one, so they said this is the right one. And I'm with them. Yeah, right, me too, because, the, you know, it's our tribe. No, I think it's more than that. No, I, think it, yeah. I think it's more than that, Dan. I think there's something in the human spirit that knows that humans should not be squashed and suppressed and crushed by other humans. Okay, except, you know, then you get Joshua in the promised land and the wholesale slaughter that goes on. So, yeah, I know, they're still humans and they're still making choices and they still act like Pharaoh plenty of times. Yes. Yes, but... But uh, there's a choice. Yes, there's a choice, but um, I, my faith, my yeah. faith is that there's something in the human makeup that aspires for more, yeah. uh, and that therefore I want to serve that path, uh, and that's, you could say that's why I'm a Jew, you can say that's why I'm, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but Pharaoh doesn't have, uh, you know, he doesn't get his say in this book. No, he does not. Right. <laughs> no, no, no I'm saying this is not a neutral, right. like, make your choice. This is, you make it, to, you get to choose, but it's pretty clear what Judaism thinks the universe, which direction you want to choose. Right, of course, and on the side of freedom and, and everybody and behaving. Choose life and the good, yeah. not death and curse. Right, right. Yeah, yes. I was thinking before when you were talking about anniversaries. I just had a birthday, and my almost four-year-old cousin was part of my birthday celebration. And she wanted to be part of that birthday. She got it about birthdays. She wanted the, I don't know, the, it's more than attention. It, it, it was, she wanted to bask in the birthday, because she understands birthdays, and she knows about 
blowing out candles and all that kind of stuff. Making cake. There's, it's, 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 there's, it's almost I got the feeling with her like that it was a piece of life force. It wasn't, it wasn't just that she had learned that birthdays are cool and she's going to get presents on birthdays. Because this wasn't her birthday and she wasn't getting any presents. She just got, she just wanted to be a part of that celebration. And I, I think that for me, Diane, the difference is in, the, the other example is I've been sitting since, since Tuesday night at the Berkeley Vote Club. I've been sitting imagining, even though they're, they were literally in different centuries, all those guys sitting around the table and deciding not, not what came down from God, not what, not what seemed to be right in the books, but what, what worked, what felt right, what, what, what um, <clears throat> noticing in human behavior what works. So, so it just feels like there's, if we, if, if we get ourselves clear enough, there is a force of life unfolding that is part of the deal. And I, I can't help but continue, I, I go back to that again and again, because when I'm in alignment with that deal, things are good and my life works. And when I'm not in alignment with that deal, I feel crappy. Thank you. Stu? You know, I... It, the, speak, a, speak loud enough, Stu. Okay. In my head, I've been dealing with some of these issues, and I believe yud is life unfolding, the creation. We are the first species, human, humans and maybe humanoids, who understand love of our children, we understand protecting our immediate family, but we also have that horrible position that the other animals don't have of going astray, of looking after what looks after our heart and all the stuff that we talk about, the, the tsetse and things like that. We have that ability, which the other animals may a little bit have, but we are, our minds are so much more advanced. So the, the idea of, um, of this part, this whole this set of rules, lions don't need the rules. They kill to eat. They don't kill evilly or not. We kill sometimes evilly and sometimes not. So we are the first kind of species that we know of anyway that have to follow these certain rules. And I like that idea. I also had the image that we don't follow a cloud, but our minds get clouded. And when our minds get clouded, that's probably a good time to stop moving. Oh, and to camp. And to <laughs> camp and figure out what's my next move going to be. That's a nice one, Stu. Thank you. That's beautiful. So when your mind gets cloudy, stop, camp, and wait for the cloud to lift. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Bob? Um, it seemed to me this section about the, uh, breaking camp and uh, following whether the cloud appears or the cloud disappears. It seems to me that's part of the boot camp you talk about, where we have to get uh, to live with uncertainty mm -hmm. and ambiguity and uncertainty. Right. Really. 
Right. We don't know who's running the cloud. We don't know whether it's for us or not. Uh, we think we have Moses checking with the boss to see if it's going to be the right mm -hmm. move. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we have to live with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, the, uh, the idea I've talked about in the past of hitching, hitching your uh, wagon to a cloud. It's like, uh, it's a different kind of journey. It's, uh, um, so I like, I, and, and I like what, I'm thinking about what both of you have said, the idea of us getting cloudy, the ambiguity, the uncertainty, and the need to, uh, to forge on. I'm also thinking about, oh, well, a couple other comments, then I'll share what I was thinking. Jay? Yeah, I feel I'm talking too much here, but I, I just can't hold back on my final comment. because. I don't <laughs> oh, don't say it's your final comment. You'll regret it. I mean, I mean today. today. Uh, no. <laughs> but, you know, this whole thing about human behavior, um, I, when I say maybe a little controversial, but, you know, just this past Wednesday, May 27th, in, in New York Supreme Court, there was a trial. I don't know if you, anybody's aware of this. between Leo, Leo and... Um, I got the other one's name. But the basis of it is uh, Stony Brook is holding these two chimpanzees in a, in a, in a jail. And um, it's gone to court. It's the non human mm -hmm. rights organization. And, 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 it's, and, and on one side, you have the New York State District Attorney. So it's not, you know, and, and there's a lot of science, scientific proof that indeed animals might be following the clouds. Um, and that we lost it. They may be steps ahead of us, mm -hmm. and we just lost mm -hmm. it. So I just have to speak up for these voiceless animals. Mm -hmm. Let's not sell them too short. Right. We are in a moment. We don't want to spend our, the rest of our class, but I understand that we are in a moment of transition culturally about how we view animals, especially higher primates and also all other animals, and it's really interesting. And, and things are changing. I know. You know, they say that they, that they can do math, that they do have compassion, that they do... We understand that. Them, that they know the future. So then, the so, but to wrap it into what Stu was saying, therefore, as our categories, we as humans are given the capability to take our previous hypotheses and rework them to now in, include, that's part of our following... But, so what I wanted to, so, yes, noted. Um, Helen, you wanted to say something. I had just looked a little ahead. I, it, it seems, though, that really, uh, in the next page, uh, God is going to tell Moses when it's time to go. So really, it's the cloud. It represents, I think, uh, God, God's word. And the word is later on, it's going to come out through Moses. So it's... It's not that really. It's, it's, I think it's sort of like telling the people, wait for your wait, wait for, for your instructions. instructions. Wait for your instructions. So, and it's going to come from Moses, and then you'll know. So really, still the leaders of the community. I mean, the people aren't just going to pick up one day and say, "This, this is it. Let's go." That's right. That's right. So when we're talking about the cloud in terms of our own personal spiritual paths, we're also Moses, right? But on this level, the Book of Numbers represents presents to us continual difficulties. Okay, continual difficulties. How do you know that, it's Mo that Moses has the authority? At the end of this portion, Miriam and Aaron are going to challenge Moses and say, 
why do you get to decide? Little brother. Little brother. Uh, uh, God speaks to all of us. And then two portions from now, Korach is going to stand up and say, who made you the, the jello sheriff? That's, never mind. Who made you the boss? And um, that question of who's, uh, who is the authority presents itself as the difficulty of this book. Right? So you are raising a really, really crucial thing. We want, the Torah presents life as it is in a very important way. It's not an idealized universe, the landscape of the Torah. And it presents the human conundrums that we face all the time. So the question, what is liberation? Is an, it's a question that we have to just keep asking. I was thinking that as I get older, my ideas uh, about it change. You know, uh, wh- what was true for me 30 years ago isn't true now. And how about folks who are older than me? And what does it mean to, is liberation accepting? Or is it rebelling? Is it, uh, and so we want to be on this path, but we're never going to be able to quite pin it down. And that's another way I think about the cloud. Are we? Is that liberation? Is liberation anarchy? Is it? Uh-huh. It's not either or. It, I don't think it's either or. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. And the ability to know the difference is discernment. So we have a huge bag to choose from and skills to choose from. And it is not only faith and trust, but it's the maturity and the kind of spiritual Pilates. It's the full palette of our human capability that yeah, we want to deploy that we have here. To choose from. We have to recognize we have to give up that some of our freedom. Oh yeah. In order to avoid some. In order to be free. Sometimes. In order to be free, do we have to give up? You know, what does it mean? What is liberation for Jews? The Torah. The the. There is not an individual path separate from the community. That's what's so beautiful. That's the Jewish, that is the Jewish chord on the piano. There is not, there's no, you can't go be a hermit and achieve liberation. You know, Shimon Bar Yochai, the famous mystic in rabbinic literature, goes and sits in a cave for 12 years and develops such spiritual power that when he comes out and he sees people engaged in narshkite, you know, in like all the nonsense that people are engaged in, uh, he looks at them, and in the story, he looks at them with such ferocity that they get incinerated. And a voice from heaven says, go back to your cave. You don't get it yet. You don't get it yet. Life, life is with people. That's the Jewish path. There is, there's no individual... Uh, uh, spiritual liberation without us all traveling together. Um, so I ho- what I'm hoping to do here, I think I'm, I think I'm succeeding, is not give you those answers because I don't, I don't have them. Right. But I do have this, this 
this particular sandbox that we're in, the wilderness is good sandbox. This this playing <laughs> a lot of sand. A lot of sand. This this playground that we've made, which says we're in this together, and that how you treat others right. is integral to your own uh, journey. It's the foundation. Um, and so liberation itself cannot be a self-centered event. Um, it has to be self and other-centered. It's, just this, it's, it's, it's intentionally complex, and that's one of the reasons why it's fun for me to think about the cloud as being something that you can, sent, you can see it, you can even feel it if it descends on you and it's moisture, it gives you shade, and that is... The cloud call. <laughs> Okay, and that is sorry about that. And um, three, one, two. That's uh, oh, good. I know who that is. That's that's my friend Reggie. Um, and um, the cloud you were talking about. Yeah, the cloud descending and moisture. Uh, but you can't have it. No, it's not. You can't hold it. You can't own it. It. It's like I love the metaphor. Um, as, uh, and I just love the metaphor. Um, Diane. I was thinking about Moses and the burning bush and how he turned aside and saw the bush. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe he saw, I mean, this is a midrash. He saw a lot of burning bushes before this one. And they all spoke to him. But this one said something he wanted to follow. (laughs) You know, I mean, it could be. Right? Okay, then tell, I want to hear you write the story so that I hear what the other bushes said that he didn't want to hear. I'm serious, I'm serious. I want to, I want to hear that story. The, the first bush said... It's like the three bears. Well, yeah, seriously. And the second bush said... And the third bush... I want to hear that story. I was thinking more like, we walk by burning bushes every day. You know, that yeah. some which have many wonderful messages for us. And some days we can't see them. Most days. Most, Most days. days. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Jerome? To me, liberation is acceptance, whether it's life or death or hardship or pleasure. Uh, this is the way things are supposed to be. By, and, it, and by accepting them, you are liberated from suffering. From suffering, yes. yes. Because, and that's very Buddhist. You're liberated from suffering because suffering is caused by railing against what is and wanting to impose... Okay, that's one take on it. On the other hand... I think it's very age-related, as you were saying. I think it's very age-related. That's the wisdom of mature years, but Mm -hmm. it's not the wisdom of the 18-year-old. Nope, nope. It certainly wasn't mine. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you did important and good things. Some of which seemed like really bad choices, looking back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so we're on a path of liberation. I, I, one of my favorites is uh, the title of Abraham Joshua Heschel's book of essays that came out in the 60s, and they were essays on... Uh, about engagement with the world. You know, they were about the civil rights movement, about... all the things he was involved with in addition to his writing about mystical Judaism. And it's called The Insecurity of Freedom. Uh, And 
I just like that. I just look at the title on my shelf. I, I don't open the book too much um, because the title somehow just takes me there. Uh, that part of liberation is also giving up certitude and and a sense of um, uh, it's risky. Yeah. And it takes courage. And courage either to fight or to accept. Uh, um, yes. 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 Don't you think there's some analogy to when we settled the West and everyone rushed for freedom out in the great unknown and gave everything up to go out there for their freedom to be whatever, and then in time they realized they had to, you know, get the marshal and make a society and give up their own, you know, taking care of, you know, shooting each other. They didn't quite do that. That's right. It's the same thing. They rushed for freedom. But then they realized they had to cap it. That's a lovely way you're telling it. And uh, I would take that and run with it a little bit to say that, and the myth of the West, which is the free, lone individual, really screws us up at this point in the world. Because there are no frontiers anymore, uh, if there ever were. and uh, so that we're stuck with this American myth of the rugged individual that, that I have internalized deeply, that my self-fulfillment, and it translates today, I would say, in American society and cultural norms as the idea that self-fulfillment is somehow the ultimate mm-hmm. achievement, uh, rather than com- communal um, uh, advancement. Um, and I think that's part of the, one of the burdens we carry uh, with, the, with the American mythos. There was an um, uh, article, uh, one of David Brooks' columns, quoting a couple of studies on a couple other articles he'd read the other day that, uh, um, oh, he'd asked writers, to, to people to write to him. Did you read this? He'd asked people to write to him about what makes them feel fulfilled. Mm. And so many of the answers had to do with tending your own garden and being good to your own family. And very few of the answers he received were about pursuing the dream. And uh, uh, it was a very interesting essay. So I think, I'm glad you brought that up because I think we carry the legacy of the American myth of the individual roaming free uh, um, in a way that's, that, 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 uh, undermines our desires for co- community. And taking other people's lands. Right. Yeah, that's why I said frontier, if there ever was a yeah. frontier. Yeah. I just want to go back to something a few people have said and speak in honor of youth. Yes. Because we've been saying, well, you know, and then you get older and wiser, and then you understand Did we? that. Uh, I, I thought we were being pretty fair, but go ahead. A lot of advances in the world are because of the stupidity of youth. You know, right, the drive. The drive, the, the focus. The desire. You know, which is, you know, maybe different from how those of us who are older view, for instance, liberation. Mm-hmm. And it's only natural that we weight our perspective 
you know, because it's our perspective. But let, let us not forget that each, whether it's specific to age or where you are in life or whatever, does something that's really unique yes. and important. Thank you. I'd say if we forget, we, we then, we then um, shore up another generation gap. Right. You, know what I, you know what I mean? It's like, can we remember so that we can support and encourage? Because, you know, yeah, my daughter's getting launched, my older daughter, and she's, she's full of fire. And I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to squelch it or quench it. Yeah. That's right. Even if it makes you hold your breath. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, beautiful. So there are a lot of problems. You know, we also have... There are a lot of problems, too. Why are you saying that? Because I was going to say, Mordecai Kaplan said, for people who know the words of God, Moses, beware of them. And it's, in it's interesting, because Moses is delivering God's word, but we know nowadays there are lots of people saying, right. I know what God wants. He it's, doesn't want gays to marry. Right. He doesn't want this. He doesn't it's want one that. Of the, it's, and it's one of the things presented in the book of Numbers is where does leadership come from? Who deserves it? Why do they get it? Are you supposed to follow all get you know because they're all okay so yeah so they're getting all ready to go. The next section talks about um, the trumpets, right? The silver trumpets that are gonna like call the blast that Helen was referring to. That's chapter 10. And you know, there's a tekiah, there's a truah, this means that, this means that. And then it says in verse 11 on page 958, in the second year, on the 20th day of the second month, which would mean the last day of the second Passover. Right? So they, I find that interesting. The cloud lifted from the tent of uh, the pact of meeting. And the Israelites set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud came to rest in the wilderness of Paran. And then the next passage says, and here they went marching by, you know, uh, each, under each degel. Degel is banner. Each tribe's banner. And they all went. And then on page 959, that's verse 29 of chapter 10, at the bottom, Yep, they've been at Mount Sinai. They have been at Mount Sinai. The whole year. The whole year. Okay. I never got that. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? They've been at Mount Sinai the whole year, and now it's year two. They've celebrated the first Passover commemoration. Then they waited another month for the folks who couldn't make it because of the airports. And... Uh, <laughs> And then they all got to be there, and then it's time to go. They've done a full cycle of leaving and then preparing and then commemorating, and it's time to go. I love that. Leaving and then catching their breath, right? Well, it's much more than catching their breath. They've received the Torah. 
they've organized themselves. They've gotten the Ten Commandments. They worship the golden calf. Uh, they what? Yeah, they're not good at catching their breath. Neither are we. But, but they have been. It all happened. A lot happened, and now they finished that cycle by commemorating, by putting it into their communal DNA, and they they're off. And then there's this beautiful passage at the bottom of nine fifty nine. And Moses said to Chovav, Chovav, which means beloved, Chaviv, is, appears to be the same person as Jethro, because it's his father-in-law. Why does Jethro have several names? I have no idea. <laughs> different, you know, modern scholars would say different t- traditions, uh, different, uh, I don't know, but, so let's just say Moses' father-in-law. And Moses says, we are setting out for the place of which yod has said, El Hamakom, they're going to Hamakom, I will give it to you. Come with us, Veheitavnu, Lachki and it'll be good for you, Heitavnu, because yod has promised, Diber Tov, has been good. I'm, it says generous here, but I want to point out the word Tov, which means good. Good to us in Israel. And now on the next page, he says, Lo elech, I will not go with you. Ki im el artsi ve'el moladati elech. I will go back to my land and my birthplace. Now he's going back to his birthplace. And Moses said, please don't go. <laughs> because you know where we should camp in the wilderness and can be our guide. Which is interesting since... I thought they just had to follow the cloud. Right. I, I'm ready for a story about what's going on with Moses. Moses' father, I mean, I like telling the story that Moses' father-in-law has been his father, mm-hmm. right? Moses, That's true. And he, he took Moses in. He taught him how to be in the world, how to be a shepherd, how to be a leader. And I don't think Moses wants him to go. Right. Uh, that's, I feel it's very poignant passage. And then Moses says, And if you go with us, It's going to be good for you, that's Tov again, God for, made for us, and, his, and will make it good for us. So Moses says the word good five times. And what Aviva Zornberg has to say about this is that He's, he's ready. Uh, Moses, is, is, Moses feels like we did it, we're ready, we did, we're on our way to the promised land. It's going to be good. And that's all going to come crashing down. Uh, that's where the high drama partly is for me. And also, well, shall we talk about the idealism of youth in some way and how you retain it? A sense of idealism in the face of the infinite disappointments of running into the, the machine, you know, of running into not just the machine, but life itself. There's also this resonance that I never noticed of, of being so attached to his father-in-law, resonance with Ruth being so attached to her mother-in-law. Oh, that's right. Nice. And then journey, and wanting to journey, to journey with. Together, even though that's not the norm. We, that's right. We never hear from uh, Moses' father again in the text. 
it doesn't well, say whether you follow the individuation. It's part of individuating to leave home, mm -hmm. to leave the father or the mother. Anna, do you need anything? Okay. But Moses doesn't want to separate. No, who wants to? Yeah, well, no, sometimes we want to. Yeah. Can't wait to leave. Yeah. yeah. But so uh, I want to. I want to just riff on on Laura's comment and say again that that's what it's making me think of. Moses is ready to go, and it's going to be good, and we're going to go to the promised land. And instead, it's going to take forty years, and he's going to die before he gets there. And he'll see it. He'll see it. Yeah, some consolation, yeah, maybe. Really. It's <laughs> like, so, in, in, no, okay, well, yes, that's another riff. I want to go with this one. Good. So how do you keep your trust mm -hmm. and faith in the journey when it's going to be dis inevitably disappointing? Yep. You know, how do you develop acceptance because that's the only way to grow old gracefully yeah. without giving up the fire of youth? And I'm thinking about that as I read this passage. Now that's a question for what it means to be liberated, I would say, um, is to balance the fire of, of idealism and the acceptance of limitation. Maybe that's the key to liberation, and it's dynamic. It's, uh, it, you do what you can to change the circumstance, knowing that what you're doing is really not going to make any difference, but willing to accept the outcome. Oh, but you said it. You don't know if it's not going to make any difference. Yeah, you do. No, no, you, no, you know it's that, you have, that you have. Well, that we've got Vietnam freedom. War protesters here. What if they hadn't protested? Then we, then we get into the you don't know. Oh, uh, right. You don't know. You don't. So yes, you don't know if it's going to make a difference. You don't know, but it may. But the point is, you don't know. There's no guarantee. But go, Jerome, you're in a different place. That it doesn't make any difference. And you do it anyway. You do, you do it anyway. Yeah, and you right. don't know if the difference is going to be for good or bad. And you but do it you anyway. Do it anyway you make your best the guess. Hope. The other book to put next hope. to your Heschel oh. book is, is The Wisdom of Insecurity by Alan Watts. Alan Watts' book was called The Wisdom of Insecurity, and Heschel's book was called The Insecurity of Freedom, and they're both writing in the 60s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wow, wow, thank you. The, the, the wisdom. Is, the age of insecurity is the Alan Watts. Alan Watts' book is The Age of Insecurity? The wisdom? We'll look. Wisdom? Well, we have to ask Rabbi <laughs> Google. I've come to call it Rabbi Google. <laughs> Rabbi Google, we have to ask Rabbi Google. Um, uh, and you were saying? No, I was only saying you, you, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, Moses is excited, he wants to go. Uh, because he's hopeful, and that's the word, hopeful. hopeful oh boy, that. yes, yes. Yeah, Carol, you know, just, talk louder. I just had, I just had a thought. Um, last, I don't know, February. Um, there were two possibilities that presented themselves in my life that felt at that moment like, like everything I ever wanted, if these two things happened, could come to fruition. Really, I had a moment of really feeling that way. 
Well, neither of those things has worked out the way that I was thinking that they would. But that, that energy that came from, 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 from that awareness that took me to right now was really important in how I lived my life then, or between then and now, and has given me something else to move on with. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, it's the journey. It, it, it's, it's the journey. It's the road but you had your eye on something. I had, the fact that I had my eye on something, it doesn't, yeah. but then it, it very rarely in my life turns out to be exactly what I have my eye on anyway. So, so I guess I'm used to letting that dissolve into whatever Whatever else it dissolves into. But it's the energy that comes with it that for that moment I think, oh, okay, this is it. That's the energy itself is really important. There's this wonderful um, place in Maui called Hana. And it's like on the right side of the island. And the road there is just the most glorious, beautiful road. And when you get to Hana, it's this little nothing place. So it's not Hana. It's the road to Hana. That's important. Which is a very treacherous road. Yeah, it's a great road. It's also treacherous. Wonderful. It's beautiful, treacherous, scary. And it is, I I consulted the rabbi, it is the uh, wisdom of insecurity. The wisdom of insecurity. From 1951. 51. He wrote that in 51. 51. Wow, okay. He's prolific. Yes. Most of his books are that old. Okay, cool. Well, what a great title. So we have a few more minutes. Uh, We've got to get to your favorite part, though. uh, No, I'm thinking I might have to stick with this portion next week. I don't know. Um, (laughs) They they marched from the mountain of the Eternal, the Har Adonai, the mountain of Yod-Hei a distance of three days and the Ark of the Covenant traveled in front of them on the three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them, and the Eternal's cloud kept above them by day as they moved on from camp. Vayehi bin Soah Aaron vayomer Moshe. This is where that passage comes from. When the Ark was to set out, Moses would say, Kuma Adonai v'yafutsu oivecha v'yanusu misanecha mipanecha. Advance. May your enemies be scattered and your foes flee before you. Uvnu Choyomar, and when it halted, they would say, Shuva Adonai Ravot Alfei Yisrael, return, O Eternal One, you who are, return Israel's myriads of thousands, come back to make camp. And that becomes what we say when we open the ark, and then when we put the Torah away. We say the second line. Um, and then, so, this is the, so, and you can see that sort of sits there as a kind of a, a space uh, between the narrative that came before and now chapter 11, where it says, Vayehi ha'am kemit onanim ra. Okay, what's the word ra? Bad. We had the word tov five times in a row. We're going to have the word ra all over the place now. It's like, and that's why I was thinking about, and where is it going to lead? The narrative's going to lead us into, uh, they're going to require, they're going to say, well, send spies up to scout out the land because we don't have enough trust. Mm. 
the spies are going to come back with less trust, things are going to fall apart, and the journey to the Promised Land, which was, which was apparently going to just like happen now, right? It's going to be good, come on. It's going to be so good. This beautiful land, we're going. It's, they're not, it's going to take 40 years. It means scatter your enemies. No, no, may your enemies be scattered. That's literally what it means. means scatter. Scatter. Your enemies. I know, I know. Oyev, oyev is an enemy in uh, Hebrew. Oyve means uh, the enemies of. Oyve means enemies of? Yeah. But no, oyve means woe is me. Whoa, whoa. Oh, well, oive means oh, oh whoa. <laughs> Yiddish. Does it come from the same? No. No, it's, a, it's one of those. But it's a good one. Funny things. May your enemies be scattered. Um, and then the people took to complaining bitterly. Hey, yeah. And uh, we're on our way, right? Okay. You've got to get there. The town meeting that never ended. <laughs> um, oy vey. So, um, so I I may choose if you don't mind to spend more time on this next week, even though we're because uh, we I couldn't I didn't know how to jump into this part of the narrative without seeing that build from before. But we'll close here. It's a perfect cliffhanger. Uh, cliffhanger happened so fast. <laughs> And uh, we'll be meeting again next Thursday. Uh, this Friday night and Saturday, we have an open, the Lev Shalem Institute is sponsoring an open Shabbat here at the synagogue called User-Friendly Judaism, which means that on, you can come to any parts of it, a little, a lot, whatever you want, and it's an, a beginner's course in, you know, an open beginner's course. So on Friday night, Rabbi Ora and I will be, uh, she will teach and lead the Shabbat rituals, and then I'm going to do just sort of an open questions and answers. You know, what, what's your question? Uh, and then on Saturday morning... It starts at 6 p.m. with potluck dinner. Oh, it's a potluck dinner. And then on Saturday morning... Services at 10. I'm going to lead the shacharit, the morning service, but it's going to be a, it's not going to be a full service. It's going to be, who has a question about this prayer? Oh, and here's what happens next. Any questions about that? It's going to be a teaching time. Uh, uh, and then Rabbi Or is going to do the same thing with the Torah service. It's open to everybody. At 12.30, bye, Laura. Bye, sorry. I understand. At 12.30... Uh, we have a lunch, but in this case, it's bring your own lunch. We're not doing another potluck. We just felt like one was enough. Um, and then after Shabbat lunch, we're breaking into three sessions. Ellen's going to be teaching a session on uh, navigating the Bible. How, what, you know, beginners, questions you have. Uh, Rabbi Or is going to do a, a, a session on the Shema. And I want to do a session on navigating, how, how you, um, understanding the Jewish sacred calendar. Uh, you know, like, 
Rosh Hashanah came early this year. It's like, we're going to, any questions you have about the calendar? Um, there's the beginner's day. And then we'll take a break in the late afternoon. And at 6.30, come back for the third Shabbat meal. We'll bring dinner. Bring your dinner if you want to come. Or come after the dinner and just come to the parts you want. There'll be a schedule posted. Um, I'm, I'll finish it today. Um, uh, and then Rabbi Orr and I are, are going to do two more breakout sessions. Uh, mine, I think, is going to be called uh, The Land of Israel in the Jewish Imagination. And Rabbi Ora was thinking about what her topic's going to be. And then we'll teach you about Havdalah, how to end Shabbat. So that's the whole plan for that 24 hours. Come to anything you want. It's free. And it's free, yeah. Um, and then we'll meet again next Thursday for and class. Thursday, and then the 18th, and then you're taking a break? Then I'm going to take a break. But I will tell you next week. I, I'm, I'm around a lot this summer. So I was thinking we could continue running the class uh, for a chunk of the summer if, that, if there's enough people interested. We'll talk about it next week, okay? I'm still working on my calendar. I have oh, and one more thing, patient people. Okay, I have information about a wonderful weekend 